and welcome to another episode of Downtime with the Cranston Public Library. We're a podcast for cool people who love libraries, where we talk about what we've been reading, what we've been watching, and what we've been loving. I'm your host, Taylor, and the branch librarian at the Oaklawn Branch Library, and my pronouns are she, her. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Suzanne Walker. My pronouns are she, they. I am a writer based in Chicago. Um, I was co-creator of a graphic novel called Mooncakes, um, which was a YA fantasy and I've had a bunch of other short stories published, and I now have a short story published in Star Wars, from a certain point of view, Return of the Jedi, which is such a mouthful of a title. I love it. Um, and then outside of writing, I, um, I practice medieval longsword, and I like to watch baseball. And those, I think, are the pertinent things about me. Uh, hi, I'm Emma Mieko-Kanden. Um, uh, my pronouns are she, they, but I'm pretty pronoun ambivalent, so whatever. Um, I am a writer of books. Like short stories are actually kind of a feat for me. So enjoy my contribution this time around. Um, I wrote uh, Star Wars Ronin, which was a spinoff of um, one of the vision shorts from Star Wars Visions. It's uh, Star Wars through the lens of Japanese history and mythology. And uh, I just came out with my original debut novel, The Archive Undying, which is uh, giant mechs, divine AIs, fraught queer romance, disability and chronic illness through the lens of sci-fi and so forth. Um, and yeah, like I am very occasionally convinced to write a short story and I got to for FactPov and it was a delight. So hi, happy to be here. I'm happy to have you both here. And I'm mad at myself that my brain did not connect you with Mooncake, Suzanne. I loved that graphic novel immensely. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, a little bit later in the show, we will talk about both of your short stories in, in the latest installment of A Certain Point of View. Um, but let's start off as we always do with what have you been reading? Um, at this particular moment, I'm in between books. Um, as I think we were discussing before the show, it is hard for me to read sometimes when I get really into writing. Um both because I am very impressionable. So when I read other people's styles, I'm like, oh, I want to do this. Oh, I want to do this, which is good in some, some circumstances it's good. Other circumstances, it's less good. Um, and it's just a time factor also. Like all of my free time is being devoted to writing. I do work a nine to five day job also. So that eats up a lot of time. Um, but I have recently read two books that I both enjoyed very much. Um, one of them is the Adventures of Amina al-Sarafi by Shannon Chakraborty, which was just everything I want in a high seas pirate adventure story. Um, it's about a middle-aged pirate captain who has been retired for 10 years and is embracing, you know, motherhood and relaxing and all of that when uh, the mother of one of her former crewmen uh, comes and is like, my granddaughter has been kidnapped. I will pay you gobs of money. You must help me. Um, and then it evolves as you would expect. Um, so that that delighted me. I also just finished Legends and Lattes, which uh, there are many instances where something gets hyped up so much that by the time I get to it, I find it to be somewhat of a disappointment or it hasn't lived up to those huge expectations. This book was hyped up so much for me. 
and I was expecting that kind of like letdown, but uh uh-uh, no, it's as good as, it's as good as everyone says. It's delightful. I enjoyed it immensely. I can't wait for, I don't know if it's a sequel or a prequel that's coming out in November, but some, another book in that universe with those characters is coming out in November and I'm really excited for it. Um, So right now I'm kind of trying to figure out what I want to read next. Um, But Emma's book is on the table because I have, I read many drafts of it in the past because Emma and I have been writing accountability buddies for a long time. Um, And so I know what it's about and I know all of the characters. I just haven't read it in full in its final complete form. And I'm really looking forward to that. So perhaps that will be next. It's been revised so much. You kind of know it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, Suze has seen probably more of this book than anyone besides my wife and my editor. <laughs> uh, that's the archive undying, the mech one. Um, okay, so uh, one of the huge perks of being a published author has been that I get arcs now. <laughs> um, so... And the really exciting thing is something I've got an arc for that I absolutely loved came out literally last week. Uh, the Water Outlaws by S.L. Huang, which is a, uh, as uh, described by the author, a gender spun uh, iteration on a Chinese classic called The Water Margin. It's a Chinese classic, but you need to understand that uh, it's like, if the Iliad were way cooler and more fun and about like outlaws and bandits and there's sword fights and there's like sticking it to the man and all this like cool, like martial arts, uh, essentially magic martial arts stuff. And uh, the retelling for the water outlaws is the characters who are in the classic all men are in this one women in one case very cleverly written as non-binary so there's like a complete excision of all pronouns when referring to this character even when it's in their point of view it's just it's so tremendous it reads like butter it's so much fun uh as Huang has like done work as a um stunt double in hollywood and so like knows how to write action in a way that's very like both appealing and grounded on top of that like the political intrigue and the um kind of savagery and brutality of governments is so well realized i love it it's great like i i've been so bored of epic fantasy lately because i've been reading it for you know three decades at this point and it felt fresh it felt good and delicious um One arc that I read a while ago, it's coming out like, I think either this month or next month. It's uh, The Death I Gave Him by M.X. Liu. And it's a queer sci-fi cyberpunky retelling of Hamlet where Horatio is an AI. And it's so good. It's, oh, I love it. I, I got so excited from page one because of the way it's playing like, games with the way it's narrated um and obviously i love ai stuff so and and queer stuff and hamlet actually so (laughs) it was a really good read for me and i really recommend it for uh, to anyone who's interested in any of those things yeah that sounds vaguely familiar i think i saw it in a collection development cart like in my (laughs) in my library i can't remember if i put it in my cart though so i might have to go back so I, um, I'm kind of running into a problem where 
I'm trying to have like a fiction and a nonfiction book going at the same time. But that has led to me like starting several different books or taking a look at several different books, but not really jumping in very deeply to any of them. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. Um, But the one thing that I didn't necessarily read, but I got to flip through and look at was a cookbook called Baking Yesteryear. Um, It is by B. Dylan Hollis. It's very popular on TikTok and other short form video platforms. Yeah, that funny young man. Oh, that guy. The the funny young man who yells. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Uh, I think some people refer to it as like gay historical baking or something like that. But yeah, that's him. Um, And he put out a book. A majority of the book is all of the good ones. There is a chapter that's the worst of the worst where he highlights some of the real buck wild ones like spaghettio jello molds kind of thing. That sounds like a sensation nightmare (laughs) for me. Um, But I have enjoyed his stuff for a while. I think hilarious got a great sense of humor but also i think it's really interesting to look at like food through the ages and like trends like like some of the weird trendy stuff in like the 50s and 60s that Mm -hmm. like like adding jello to everything that everyone's like no we we figured out that's a bad idea we stopped doing that and like you know depression and war era food like how they were making swaps in order for things cheaper to make and stuff is very interesting um so yeah uh, i would recommend you check the book out and you get to look at all the recipes that weren't bad except for the end where you can look at some of the recipes that were bad that sounds fun (laughs) it was it was a lot of fun and he really tried to like in in the book eject his humor into like the descriptions of the recipes and some of the photography is actually very funny of like like there's a date loaf and he's like cutting it like in his pajamas but he's like with the date loaf in bed and like okay okay i see the pun (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah so stuff like that which is very much kind of like what his humor is like in the video so i thought that was interesting and and appreciate that they were able to help him convey that it's it's almost like dad humor through the lens of a young queer twink it's like i love it yeah exactly (laughs) it's like puns but the puns are about the gay experience yeah, he's adorable. I love him. I want to feed him lasagna. <laughs> so I guess I just have to go into the next segment because I don't know how else to transition out of I want to feed him lasagna. <laughs> Swerve. So besides reading, um, have you all been watching anything? I think it has been an annual rewatch since I first watched the series in 2019. But I'm doing I'm doing my Black Sails rewatch because every summer I get the pirates I want to watch a show about pirates um and just pile through it um so yeah it's it's again like I haven't done before it's like my fourth or fifth time watching it but I really love it it's fun um it's really good well the second two through four are really good season one leaves something to be desired but to watch it to get to the good stuff um and then just a lot of YouTube. <laughs> Fair. Like, I get it. <laughs> so last night I actually, uh, I started rewatching something like literally this, this, like, I don't know, this weekend. And then I just plowed through everything because I was like, man, 
I actually think I never finished this. Um, but uh, Venture Bros, which I've watched off and on as it like evolves through the years. And it's fascinating because, you know, like as someone who is a marginalized person, like there's a lot of the humor in it is like, you know, what they would call problematic, but it's just so funny and I just I've admired the humor and the narrative structure of it for so long because it's so experimental and so content to just like cut when it's like I've done the bit like you don't need to see the rest of this like I'm not gonna spend time like doing an action sequence unless I can make the action sequence funny and so when the action sequences do hit they are riotously funny they're just so clever um, and like, I don't get all the references it makes, but I do get some of them. And it's just the writing is consistently really, really solid. They they apparently came out with like a finale movie over the last couple months. And I'm like, Oh, I kind of want to watch that. But I think I am very behind. <laughs> so, um, but on the far other side of the spectrum, something that I also think is very narratively clever, um, and just like fully balls to the wall, just like absolute um willingness to experiment and to seek uh the best kind of drama available in the form but is actually like super uh not a problem for me ever like I never cringe at any of the jokes because I trust them fully friends at the table is a podcast they do tabletop rpg um and have just the most bonkers buckwild uh speculative world building they have these ongoing uh seasons that they like intermingle they did this high fantasy series for a long time but brought the narrative to a conclusion they're currently doing one that's uh like mechs and empire and challenge like I think something I was telling someone yesterday was like what I like about them is that they're kind of bored with the question of is a robot a people because like if a robot has sentience yes it's a people what they're more interested in is like what kind of people is it possible to and I love them for that they were foundational to the book that I have mentioned now like the archive undying so I'm kind of like emotionally obligated to plug them at every opportunity but I am listening to their current season which is another season about mechs and empire and stuff and currently it's very terrifying because uh, the, the scary person in charge that the empire sent to rule the planet that they're all on has been like hey if you come at me again I'm blowing up the sun and everything nearby it and the DM has made clear to them, like, if you fail this mission, I will blow up the sun and we are just going to have to switch to the next season. And it's like, <laughs> I'm afraid. Like, I believe that he will do this. <laughs> but like, the writing is so good. They're, they're dealing with the weight of terror and existential catastrophe so well, which is a thing I think on all our minds a lot these days. Um, I just trust them with every kind of, of story and drama and narrative. And I'm always interested in what they're doing. If you're at all into video games um, and like thinky type video games, Waypoint was a website that was um, an offshoot of Vice that had like some really good material, like digging into not just the stories that games are telling us, but like the culture of them and the way they're made. And it was the brainchild of Austin Walker, who is the guy who's like the GM for uh, Friends at the Table. And it 
it died an ignominious death, but is being revived by its uh, workers. Uh, so, like, check out Waypoint. It's also amazing. <laughs> that sounds fun. That does remind me. I am also watching for a second time uh, Vox Machina. I finished season one and went on to season two. And it just pleases me so much because I watched a couple of episodes of Critical Role in the middle. Like, I, I, I think it was the moment that is the middle of season two what is season two of Vox Machina because I remember Will Friedle being the guest and I really loved it but I just do not have the attention span or the time commitment to listen to three hours a week of story um so I never like got it past that so the fact that they have made it into a show makes me so happy because now I can like absorb it and know what everybody is talking about at least for the first uh arc I understand they're going to be doing the Mighty Nine, who are my babies. Yes, they're, they're my kids. Yes. Oh. <laughs> so I'm really excited for you to watch them. <laughs> yeah, I, I've heard a lot about the Mighty Nine also, so I'm I'm excited for that. But yeah, that's just been fun. It's especially been fun because uh, Emma and I are both in the same D and D campaign right now, and it's the first time I have really played D and D, and I'm enjoying myself immensely so it's nice to have that sort of like in conjunction with what we're doing uh in Ravenloft oh you guys are playing a Ravenloft campaign it, it took me so much willpower not to say well the thing I'm doing that I'm obsessed with that's not a book <laughs> is this freaking D&D campaign <laughs> <laughs> I'm just starting to play in another campaign that Dave is also in and my friend from library school is DMing <laughs> um so no definitely you, you were in the right place i we can't get off topic because we still have to talk about your books yes. your, or the books that you both wrote for, which we came to promote. But this is, I think, the first time possibly in the history of recording the show that I have other critical role people on the show. <gasps> really? Usually when I talk about that, what I'm watching is critical role. I have to like go through the whole thing about like it's a tabletop or a D&D actual play game. So they stream their game for thousands of people to watch and like explain it to a bunch of people so i'm a little behind on season three right now but i have been keeping up with spoilers in part because um of some of the romance things that are happening right now <laughs> and just like right? i okay there's a pair of characters who come on as like gal pals <laughs> And, you know, if you're at all queer, you're looking at it, you're like, oh, they're they're going to be married in 10 years or like possibly tomorrow. It depends on like when they have the epiphany. And you're like not entirely sure if the players know that that's the energy they're bringing. And so there are a bunch of people on the Internet all like speculating and talking about it. And I just so happened to tune in on the day, like about a month ago when they were playing the session where they first kissed. And I lost my little mind because like. I had thought it was cute until that moment. And it, it's that thing about representation that's kind of interesting in magic. Because, like, I understand it intellectually, but it's the moments when it hits you in the chest that you go, oh, that's why it's meaningful. And just, like, these two women who are so intimately bound up in each other's emotional lives, who are each other's anchors, who will, like, do literally anything for each other and are just constantly, like, in, in that tangle. and don't necessarily understand that they're already married. <laughs> it's so common and so like the thing among the queer woman and also like a number of non-binary people I know just like, okay, cool. I, 
my wife and I got lucky because I had no patience for it. <laughs> and so like, I, I very early on was like, yeah, we're dating now. It's fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, but it's just the fact that it's so recognizable. It just like, I went to Comic-Con shortly after this happened. And every time I saw a cosplay of them, like I would get giddy. And I was like, oh, okay, this is really meaningful. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's funny. Like every week I would say to my boyfriend that I would be like, I gotta get caught up on Critical Role because the lesbians are lesbianing. And he's like, that's what you said last week. And I'm like, I know, but it's gonna happen this time. This week it's gonna happen. And I did that for literally like months and months. And yeah, now they now they finally kissed. Spoilers. Yeah, mild spoilers for Legends and Lattes. Um, I definitely once you get to the back half of the book, multiple instances where you find me just staying out loud, you stupid lesbians. <laughs> because obviously they belong together and they're obviously both dancing around it in that way that people do. And then I was like, really rich of you to say specifically considering it took you like three years to realize you were in a relationship. Yeah, no, like, Suze, your your peak representation for your uh, <laughs> Imogen and Laudna. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm really, like, I can't talk. <laughs> but also, these lesbians need to get it together. <laughs> I want that on a t-shirt. These lesbians need to get it together. <laughs> And we'll return to the show after a quick break. Looking for a movie to watch? Canopy has over 30,000 feature films and documentaries for you to stream for free. Log in using your Cranston library card and receive eight free play credits each month. That's eight movies every month that you can watch for free. You can watch the 2016 Academy Award-winning film Moonlight, Taika Waititi's horror comedy, What We Do in the Shadows, and many more films today with Canopy. Go to cranstonlibrary.org to find the link to sign into Canopy today. The library is launching a new collection, School Tools. Check out tools, toys, games, and interesting objects for learning and play from Central Library, including a microscope, toy cast register, robots, and more. The tools are meant to support parents who are teaching at home and encourage kids to pursue their passions. If you have suggestions or feedback for this new collection, email emily at emilybrown at cranstonlibrary.org. As much as I could talk to you all for a long time, probably, about Critical Role, what we came here to talk about is your inclusion in the latest installment of From a Certain Point of View in celebration of the 40th anniversary of Return of the Jedi. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I guess I wanted to start off at the beginning. I'm just curious where your Star Wars kind of like fanness was coming into the project. I've been an enormous Star Wars freak for the vast majority of my life, I would say. The first like sort of brush I had with it didn't really click the first time because my when the uh, special editions for the 20th anniversary were re-released, my dad really wanted to take me to see them. 
And I was six or seven and I saw the commercials for them and I decided that the lightsabers were too scary and <laughs> I had no interest in seeing the scary lightsabers. So I stayed home while my dad took my younger sister, which was really, uh, <laughs> really did something to my ego there. And then I must have been sometime in the year before The Phantom Menace came out. Um, my cousins were visiting and they were watching Return of the Jedi, actually, and I watched it with them. Really interesting first actual exposure to Star Wars. And I understood nothing of what was going on. And I remember very little of it other than, ironically, the scene with Obi-Wan telling Luke, I told you it's true from a certain point of view, because I thought that that was so messed up um and the moment when his helmet comes off was just like seared into my brain but it didn't spark that sort of like fanish enthusiasm um and that was phantom menace when phantom menace came out in 1999 and i was going into fourth grade and it whatever like people can say what they want about that movie but whatever it is clicked with my little nine-year-old heart so profoundly and then I watched the rest of the original trilogy and I started reading the books like tie-in novels pretty much immediately because they had a bunch of really good middle grade stuff back then um and it was just all downhill from there and it has been that way ever since <laughs> so the, the story I often tell is like I was like seven or so we were on vacation like in this little cabin with another family by a river and the kids are all like out playing and I just happened to pass by the television while like there's this scene and it's snowy there's a cave there's ice there's a guy hanging upside down and like he's bloody and that's scary and there's a yeti and that's also scary and then he's like reaching for this metal canister thing and I was just something about it like made my brain just stop and watch and then the metal canister smacks into his hand like with the telekinesis magic or whatever and then it's a laser sword and I just sat there and I watched the rest of it like what is it happening but from that point on I was like this is a tiny little Star Wars nut and um I was also a pretty precocious reader, so I would be taken to the library and like left there for hours and could reliably entertain myself there while my mom did errands. And uh, because it was fun to be able to go onto the playground and brag that I was reading like adult books and I could do that, um, <laughs> I was very quickly like just browsing the adult shelves for books and I realized that some of them were for Star Wars. <laughs> And I just sat down and started reading them. And eventually I had read all the Star Wars books at my branch. And so I was like, can we go to another branch so we can find more Star Wars books? And then eventually I'm just sitting in the mall at like Borders in the aisle reading everything I can. That, that, was, that was how I got my fix. <laughs> that is such a like shared memory for me. Like the number of... Barnes and Noble or Borders or um, my, my grandpa lived uh, in this town in South Carolina and they had this like independent bookstore and I would just go there and sit and read. Um, and that was just all I did. Yeah, yeah. So like, the, the funny part about this is that like, for the longest time for all like, there were there were people I knew who would like get into Star Wars, like, I, I had, I was friends with this group of boys who I'd known since like preschool, we just kept hanging out for some reason, even though we were all in different schools. And uh, we would play like rebels and empire in the woods. <laughs> and all the like that kind of thing. But this whole time through middle school, high school, 
everything. I was the person who was the Star Wars nut. And then I go to college and a couple of years in, I meet Suze. And I'm like, oh, thank God, someone else who is a Star Wars nut, someone who is an <laughs> even bigger Star Wars nut than I am. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, because yeah. for, for me, um, a Star Wars nut was a very sort of alienating experience and isolating experience because once you know like in elementary school I had friends who were like Star Wars and willing to play it with me but once you got to middle school and you got to the books and everything just no one I knew was into them and no one I knew like had any patience for me talking about them to them um and I I hope my mother never listens to this podcast. She at one point told me that I would make more friends if I stopped talking about Star Wars so much. Um, <laughs> and so that was just, it was just a very like lonely and solitary experience. And then almost exactly 15 years ago, I'm at my college's uh, activities fair where they have all the clubs um, with all the tables lined up and I'm walking past and I see this table for the science fiction society. And a person who I later discover is Emma is sitting there and she is so effusive and lovely and enthusiastic about science fiction. But I'm pretty sure at some point I was like, do you guys like star Wars? And they were like, (laughs) (laughs) and then I went to a club meeting where everybody Star Wars nut. <laughs> Perhaps not quite to my level or extent, but and I could talk about the books. And that's how we became friends. Um, yeah. So Susan and I met like when we were in college and that was just a, a gift because like we didn't become like accountability buddies until after graduation, like years after. But it, it's been a friendship and a relationship we've we've cultivated this entire time. And it started with like, hey, you also read Rogue Squadron? Cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was great to finally like know that there were other people out there who had that same love and who knew who I was talking about when I was like, I'm rereading Wraith Squadron right now. As one should. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But also I find it interesting that it seems like a common thread for both of you was like after initially watching the movies was to turn to books and a lot of the novelizations that were out there at the time. So I guess that transitions well into like, what is the experience after having that background now getting the opportunity to write in Star Wars? It's very hard to describe which feels like a cop-out because I'm a writer and I should be able to put (laughs) words to this. When I was a kid, I would always, on top of reading all of the books, just be inventing stories in my mind where like, I would put myself in the Star Wars universe and I'd be like walking around with Leia and Luke and Han. Um, And so many people say that it's a dream come true and it is, but it is not a dream that I even had because I didn't think it was something that was possible or could ever happen. Um, And then actually having the experience of doing it, um, fascinating because I, as I was writing it, I had a lot of other stuff going on in my life. And like, it was hard for me to focus on getting the story done. Um, And I was talking with my spouse at some point and they were like, you know, I'm really sorry that like, you're not like able to live in the experience of creating it um, the way that you should be. And I'm like, I think to a certain extent, it's good because it removes the 
because I was more emotionally removed from it, which I think is beneficial to crafting a story. Um, and at the end of the day, whatever my experience writing it is, like it's done. And it is a story that I can go back and read however many times I want. And that sort of, I hesitate to say legacy, but the fact that it is there and it is indelible and I will always have it, like is so, so special and so cool. Um, and so, yeah, that was, that was kind of what my experience of it was like. Yeah. So really big emotions are something that I tend to like put on mute in my brain and they like wiggle out over time in like little ways. So this is actually like my second experience with Star Wars, but it's my first experience with the canon. Um, and that getting to write Ronin was just so surreal in so many ways that I would just be like, oh, this is cool. And then I'd be driving and have a moment of like ecstatic epiphany. <laughs> I'd be like, you have to pay attention to that stoplight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so like getting to write Ronin and, and that in itself being like this practice of interpretation and translation of not just uh, Japanese culture, but Star Wars and uh, modern, I call it modern mythology a lot, Star Wars as a whole. And so getting to um, spend a whole book like talking to it and um, having conversations that I've been having with myself about the about it for like decades at that point um, on the page in ways that I hoped were a contribution to the canon and to people's relationships with it in a way that it was really good for me because like um, I, I had over time, I think gotten a little cynical about Star Wars and especially because we're in this age of like the, the mega nerd franchise and um, a lot of it, I, I find rather boring um, because I'm I'm an old school nerd, so I like the weird stuff. And when it gets like, uh, often the spectacle is getting in the way of like the truly weird stuff. And I love spectacle, but I'm exhausted by it. And so I I, I just need more meat on the bone. That's just what does it for me. So getting to do that for a whole book was really really special, and I love running a lot and what I was able to do with it. But at the end of the day, I think it's still pretty cynical about Star Wars as a whole, because I think there's something about it that's very like, legacy is a poison and a trap, which is why people who like The Last Jedi like that book, and the people who did not like The Last Jedi feel kind of alienated by that book. So like having that in mind and getting an opportunity to actually step into the canon, and not only um, like the canon, but a character who I have adored since I was reading about him like way back when I was in the single digits of life um I, I was thinking about all this and trying to figure out like what is a relationship I can have with this story that's um honest to my sense of character and world and story while also honoring Star Wars as best as possible um so like that was the project I gave myself for, for this particular turn. Yeah. Um, and I, I do want to sort of not amend, but add on to my previous statement in terms of when I was talking about sort of the emotional remove. I will say the day I found out was just like a 24 hour fever dream because <laughs> I just like, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle, I mean, I could handle it, but like the fact that this was something that I had wanted for so long 
and is something that was actually happening again like sort of emma said like there would be moments in like the days and weeks after and even now like there will just be moments where it hits me and it's like what (laughs) i can't believe that this now has happened and it's just if i never publish another thing again I will be satisfied with the career I've had because I got to write this story. Awesome. All right. Before we move on to like our ending segment of the show, I personally am very curious what your experience was working with the Star Wars story team to make sure that your vision for your story was like still cohesive with their vision of canon events. I mean, it was about what I expected, um, especially working, I mean, work, and working with Tom, who is the editor um, at Del Rey, was an amazing experience because he has so much knowledge of the Star Wars canon. And if you're talking with him about developing a story or an idea or a character, he just has facts that he can like rattle off. And he has a really wonderful vision of what makes like a compelling Star Wars story specifically, but also just a compelling story in general. Um, and and I've said this before, um, because this was this was my first experience working with intellectual property where you have sort of these of you can't you can't do this because it doesn't comply with canon or whatever. Um, find working within that framework to be easier than I think some people do. And I think it's because I've discovered that you can do a lot within those bounds. Like they, they constrain, but they also force you to think in a different way. Like if I remember what precisely it was, but there was something that I meant to include and Tom said something about how it didn't quite work out because of XYZ. And I was like, okay, I gotta gotta reconfigure this. And I liked what I came up with instead way better. It suited the story more. And I just had fun with it. Um, when I first asked to write the story, I sent some pitches to Tom of potential ideas that I had. And then we had a call and we talked about it. And he's the one who initially planted the seed for what became the story. And it was just, it was because like we had that conversation that Nora's story was able to develop. And it was, it's just fun. I love working with editors. I love working with other people on stories. Uh, yeah, I, I've now worked with Tom for a whole book and for like this specific thing. And it, it's weird working with an editor on something that like you've been hired to write a story but it's not necessarily your story. So there's this negotiation going on between like your vision and their responsibilities to you and to making sure that the story is good. And so there, uh, with, with Ronan, when I test- turned it in, I was like, oh my God, what's going to happen? Like, wh- what, what's, like what's Tom's take going to be? But his response to that like made me just trust him instantly because it was so clear that his prerogative was nurturing the voice and and uh, perspective that I was bringing to the story. And um, so by the time we were working on something in canon, like I, I just implicitly trusted him. Absolutely. Like I had a very clear sense of where I wanted it to end, but I was sort of like, you know, not sure about where it began. And so we started with like, just like talking through Wedge and who he is and like the idea of like what this character means in the context of everything and what this character 
would ideally be doing and what he's doing instead. <laughs> and um, so like, and it's fun to, I'm really curious to know, Suze, I don't think you've told me like what the seed you got from Tom was because like, for me, like I said, I had a very clear vision of like where the story was going. I knew I wanted to end with feet on Endor and also like with a view of those fireworks because they've yeah. been something so impactful to me and like part of my uh, feelings about Star Wars and this movie in particular for like probably ever since I watched it. Um, but I, I needed a place to start and I really got that from talking to you because there was this moment where we realized, wait a minute, we could be writing like essentially crossover fic. Mm -hmm. If they're at all like bound up in the pilot stuff, then like, hell yeah. So uh, collaborating with Seuss was also just like such a critical joy of this whole experience. Mm -hmm. So yeah, like, yeah. What was, what was that lineage? Oh yeah. Okay. So um, knew that I wanted to write something the night before the battle and was sort of trying to figure out, you know, like, well, there are so many pilots, there are so many um, different ways to tell a story the night before the battle, like, what is that? And Tom was like, what does it mean for the characters who know that whether the Alliance wins or loses, this is like the end of the Alliance? Like, if they win, they're going to become something different. They're going to become the new Republic. They're going to have to switch from fighting to governing. Um, they lose, they all die. Um, and the gravity of that. Um, and I came to Nora because I like her a lot. Um, and everything she has going on with her son and the fact that, you know, like she left her son behind to fight in the rebellion. And that's something that, um, in uh, Nora Wexley first shows up in the Aftermath trilogy, uh, which is the, one of the first trilogies of books uh, that was published uh, in sort of the quote unquote new canon. Um, and it's really something that is a major focal point of that is the fact that she left her son behind to fight in the rebellion. And I think that that the fact that she's thinking about what she has sacrificed, what she sacrificed, decided her son is going to sacrifice and knowing that tomorrow one way or the other, is just a weight that I thought was really interesting to explore. Um, and then I got the idea for the card game, um, <laughs> which just are a really central part of how my family functions. And so I thought it would be a really interesting and fun setting that also leaves room for the more serious contemplations on the night before the battle. Um, and yeah, working with Emma was really the best part of this. <laughs> like, I... Again, like I've said, like Star Wars has been such a solitary experience for so much of my life and getting to share it with somebody, even for this, for crafting these stories was just incredibly cool. Yeah, it was. Oh, God. Yeah. No. Uh, thank you, Suze. Yeah. I mean, thank you. And we were like, oh, hell yeah. We're going to write future spouses. Oh, my God. Yes. A card game. <laughs> just. <laughs> it was yeah, so no, exciting. And I should like go back and see if I can preserve those chats because it was just like um the experience as a whole like just sharing little bits and going like okay here's where like I, I've got references and like building across uh the these two tales and like you like I had a need for a rookie pilot and like I I took that character from you because they were like here and I was like oh good thank you <laughs> I'll be I'll be <laughs> borrowing that <laughs> um, 
Yeah, that was so great. And it was also, it was so funny because I didn't pick Nora with the thought of like, oh, Wedge's future wife. Um, And then I realized it and I was like, oh, great. This gives some really juicy chances to collaborate with Emma. And it's fitting because throughout my entire adolescence, I wanted to be Wedge Antilles' wife. I wanted to be Wedge Antilles, you know? Like, (laughs) 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 we made it. Yeah, Yeah. it was good. So it's funny. One of the questions I skipped was how both your stories were about the rebellion and very tied up in each other. So it's it's great that we touched on that they actually were even more tied up in each other than us, the readers, could have realized reading it um, because of your collaboration. When I realized that we were going to be interviewed together, I was like, oh, God, yes. Thank you. Thank you. I needed this. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Same. I, I don't remember. I think we were just like talking in some other context and you mentioned this interview for the Rhode Island Library. I was like, oh, oh, that's me. <laughs> they probably did that on purpose. Ooh. Yeah, they, they know we're buds. <laughs> Tom's looking out for us. <laughs> yes. All right. So the book is out now. A Certain Point of View, A Star Wars Story, Return of the Jedi. Is that the book? I, I think it's From a Certain Point of View, Return of the Jedi. <laughs> okay. I just threw a Star Wars story in there. All right. It'll be in the show notes. Go check it out. And uh, either of you want to plug any other places online that our listeners should check out to find you, your writing, what you're working on. This is the period where the fact that I've been meaning to set up a newsletter and have yet to set up a newsletter is really coming back to bite me in the butt. Um, I don't have a newsletter, but you can find me on all of the standard social medias. I am Suzasaur, S-U-Z-U-S-A-U-R on social media site that is trying to replacement of Twitter. Um, and I'm still <laughs> on Twitter occasionally until it actually does die its fiery death. And you can find links to all of my fiction works um, at my website, which is linked in most of my bios. And it's uh, just to spell it out. It's Suzanne Joaquin, W-A-K-E-E-N Walker.com. So uh, I technically have a newsletter. I have not updated it in almost two years <laughs> um, and uh, I do have a website as well emcandon.com and you can find me on currently mostly Tumblr, Blue Sky and Instagram at emcandon uh, come hang out with me on Tumblr, that's where I get silly <laughs> I love getting asked <laughs> I, I was telling people the other day like well he, someone asked me like what what animals are the cast of the Archive Undying and that, or like what what cocktails are they? And I was like, yes, good. More of these. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, you're going to love our last chapter segment then, because the last chapter we talk about a library bookish related question to wrap up the show. And many of them are kind of like, would you rather questions? And I thought since both of you were writers, I would ask what would be the title of your autobiography and or like memoir type work? Like if you were to write a book, about you and your life, what would the title be? Keeps Not Dying. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's a great question. Um, I'm struggling to come up with an answer that isn't self-deprecating. Chaos Muppet. Yeah, there you go. Chaos Muppet, that's great. (laughs) 
Yeah, now I'm like, even when I picked this question, I feel like I've had conversations where people where I've been like saying something and then I'll be like, that'll be the title of my memoir. You know what I mean? Like that thing happened <laughs> yeah. so often to me that that's going to be the title of my memoir, my autobiography. But I can't think of what any of those instances are. Yeah. Um, the, the only thing I could think of is like, is, I don't know, something about like, oh, where did I put that? because uh, <laughs> I really struggle with object permanence so if mm-hmm. something is not visible I think that it doesn't exist anymore I think as a title I really struggle with object permanence would absolutely make <laughs> me pick up a book oh all right so we should just, <laughs> we should just do that mm-hmm. I recently made reference to as I'm going on a camping trip with some friends later in the month and I made a reference to the Walker School of Pyrotechnics which <laughs> is not memoir title necessarily but it is a reference to an an aspect of my life and my sort of family genealogy um because I come from a long line of people who have accidentally burned things down I have never accidentally burned things down I have only burned things in safe and controlled environments but I do enjoy burning them I was just thinking like didn't your dad almost like burn down the house not that long ago not two months ago which is why this was like at top of mind when they were like who could build a fire i'm like i can but i do it the smart way (laughs) (laughs) all right thank you both for joining me uh and thank you everyone for listening if you would like to respond to our last chapter question or just reach out to the show you can do that by emailing us at downtime at cranstonlibrary.org can also reach out to us via social media with hashtag downtime cpl If you're feeling generous, please rate, review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts because it helps people find the show. Thank you again for listening. And this has been another episode of Downtime. Downtime is a project of the Cranston Public Library and is produced by Elena Rios, Robin Nizio, and me, Taylor Cardillo. Audio engineering by Dave Bartos. Our theme music is Day Trips by Ketza. And our ad music is Happy Ukulele by Scott Holmes. Links to the books and movies discussed can be found in the show notes. Remember to rate and review Downtime on Apple Podcasts. Connect with the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram with the hashtag DowntimeCPL. And if there's something you'd like to hear on the show, send an email to downtime at cranstonlibrary.org. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the speaker's own and do not represent those of the Cranston Public Library. The material and information presented here is for general information purposes only. The Cranston Public Library name, in all forms and abbreviation, are the property of its owners and its use does not imply endorsement or opposition to any specific organization, product, or service. The content of this episode is the property of the Cranston Public Library and may not be reproduced without express written permission. Join us next week for more Downtime. Sorry for cussing. Um, No, that's fine. Dave loves to bleep things. Oh, okay, okay. Um... (laughs)